We're back in Mark chapter 16. Mark 16, I'm going to talk about the impact of the empty tomb, part 2. Beginning in verse 1, it says, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, Well, who will roll away us the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was already rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he said unto them, Well, be not affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee, and there you shall see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled. That means like you'll flee from an animal that's chasing you. And fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. And now when Jesus was risen early in the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, they believed not. And after that he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue, and neither they believed them. And afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat, and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And let's pray. Father, we once again come before you here, Lord. I ask that you'll help me to speak your words of truth, anoint my lips, and that it'll bless everyone that is here to hear and I just ask you'll open all of our hearts to the truth of your word and to the tremendous truth of your resurrection. And I thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen. I said the last time that it is impossible, and it is virtually impossible, to overstate the importance of the resurrection of the Lord because the combined events we said of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, they are the heart of the gospel. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, that the gospel that he preached, and he said, this is the truth wherein you will be able to stand, was this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of, and then he names everyone that he was seen of, Peter and James and the 500. And you take away, the, what he's saying there is, you take away the resurrection, and there is no gospel. There is no good news. That's the heart of the good news. And he went on to say, this is how crucial that the resurrection is. When you study something and you're kind of living in it for a couple weeks, it just dawns on you more and more and more. You know, you guys just maybe show up once. I don't know how much you think about a message afterwards, but I start realizing really throughout my Christian life, it's not that the resurrection, you never think about it at all. I realize this really have not made as big a deal about it as the New Testament does. It is crucial. And Paul says this. He gives these things in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ isn't risen, he said that our preaching is in vain, worthless. And he says, not only that, but your faith is also worthless. In other words, this faith that you say that you'd be willing to die for is empty. There's absolutely nothing to it. And you just might as well party. 
<laughs> if that's the way it is. And you think you're forgiven? And he said, well, if there's no resurrection, then he said, if Christ isn't raised, your faith is in vain and you are yet in your sins. You have no forgiveness. And the day of judgment that's coming, it's going to be bad. You will have no hope if he was your hope. You say, if there is no resurrection. He also says, is this important? He said, if Christ isn't raised, then those that have fallen asleep in Christ, they are perished. And so that means your Aunt Mabel, your mom, your dad, your brothers, your loved ones, whoever it is, they are not being comforted. And that's no comfort to us, is it? That just means that there the worms are eating them up and that's all there is to it. That's what he's saying. If Christ be not risen, they perished. There's nothing there. And he also says, if Christ be not raised, we're found, the apostles, to be false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. And Paul says, I'm a liar. I'm a false witness. I've said something that God did something that he didn't do. And he's like, that is a very serious thing if the resurrection never took place. So he's saying, if, 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 if Christ was not raised from the dead, he's saying everything. We got to think about it. This is what he's saying. This is how important it is. Everything we believe, everything we're about, everything we do, it would just fall apart. It's worthless. There's nothing to what we do. Like we said, if you took all of the references to the resurrection out of the New Testament, it wouldn't make any sense at all to read it. That's how critical it is. It's crucial. It's vital. All important. A major big deal. You start running out of adjectives. But that's what it is. Because it is that major of a big deal. And who in here has ever seen anyone raised from the dead? I never have. And we're required, like I said, that is part of salvation. That's what Romans 10 says. You have to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead or you are not saved. And yet the devil from day one has been attacking the doctrine of the resurrection, the literal bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, those soldiers, they were given orders, you guard the tomb, because his disciples, we don't want them coming. That deceiver said he was going to rise in three days. We don't want his disciples coming and stealing that body out of here and saying that that's what happened. So they put four soldiers there, four battle-hardened soldiers there. And guess what? An earthquake happens. The stones rolled away. They see this angel, and it says they're shaking, and they fall down like dead men. So guess what they had to report now? Uh, there's nobody in that tomb anymore. And they're in big-time trouble. Some of the watch of the city showed unto the chief priest all the things that were done. And here's they get together, and when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, you say this, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the ear of the governor, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were told. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. Well, that's the day that it was written. I'm saying it's commonly reported up to this day. Our present day, it's still being attacked that way, that the body was just stolen by his disciples. And like I said, it continues to go today. Lee Strobel, who's written a book, a very good book, his book, The Case for Christ, is an excellent book. It will help you in evangelizing and witnesses. But he also wrote a book smaller than that called The Case for the Resurrection. If you don't know who Lee Strobel is, he was a journalist, one of the top journalists for the Chicago Tribune. 
And also, for most of his life, he was an atheist. So at a young age, he determined that God didn't create people, but he said people created God just because they're fearful of death. They invented this benevolent deity in this blissful heaven that they're all going to just so they can have some kind of hope in this life. He just said, I wasn't going to get into that. So what do you do? What did Paul say? If you're somebody that doesn't believe that there's a hereafter or a day of judgment coming and no resurrection from the dead, what's the next logical step? Eat, drink, and be merry. Because tomorrow we die. And after that, there's nothing but the worms. And that's how Lee Strobel did. He said, I just made up my own morality in my own life as I went along. And he said this. He said, my main value was to bring maximum pleasure to myself. Maximum pleasure to myself. And he said, as a result, and he said, this is very difficult for me to admit. He's writing this after he's a believer. He said, this is what I was like. He said, I lived a very immoral, drunken, profane, narcissistic, and even self-destructive life. And he said this, and this is true of a lot of people that drink a lot and just give themselves over to just ministering to themselves. He says, I had a lot of anger inside of me. He was a mean drunk. And he'll talk about cases like that. His wife and his daughter were deathly afraid of him. And he said, I live my life for maximum pleasure. Now, nobody in here would live like that just for the pleasures of this world. I would hope not anyways, but that's how he lived. Now what happened was his wife got saved. And he's like, man, I noticed a change in her that I do not know how to explain this. And so the journalistic nature of him came out and he went to the church that she went to and heard that stuff there. And he decided, I'm going to check into all this, this Christianity. If you know the story, he spent two years investigating the claims of Christianity. So this is where his search led him to. He said, it didn't take me long to conclude that the truth or falsity of all world religions. And listen to this. And he said, and the ultimate meaning of life itself comes down to just one key issue. One key issue, he said, it all comes down to this. Did Jesus or did he not return from the dead? He said the answer to that fundamental question would settle everything. And why would it settle everything, he said? Because Jesus claimed to be the unique son of God. Yet think about this. He said anybody could make a claim to divinity. And if you ever have been in a mental institution, there's a lot of people that claim divinity. They do. He said anybody could claim that, and he said even me. But he said the real question is whether this assertion can be backed up. He's saying that is where the rubber meets the road. Anyone can claim to be divine. Many people have. Many people will still. The Antichrist will. But can that assertion be backed up? And he went on to say this. In other words, rising from the dead would validate Jesus' proclamation of his divinity. And he says, this explains why the resurrection is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. He said this, in short, if the resurrection is false, then Christianity is refuted. But if it's true, then regardless of what any world religion teaches, Jesus is the one and only Son of God. And he says, and that changes everything. And also, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by me, that invalidates every other religion that's in this world, doesn't it? Amen. 
I could name a famous evangelistic preacher in this country that said you can be saved without hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ and calling on his name. No. Just because you're in some country that you've never heard that, God could still somehow save you, regenerate you. And I'm like, that's not what the Bible says, though. That's why it says they have to hear. And how can they hear unless someone is sent? And we have to be sent to proclaim the good news. That's the way it works. It's whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is a hard saying for a lot of people to receive, but that's the way it is. And that's why missions have to go forth. And that's why Jesus said, pray for people to be sent out into the harvest. Well, anyways, after this Lee Strobel, my point is it's still being attacked today and questioned. So after he became a Christian, he interviews Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy magazine. He's asking Hugh Hefner about his spiritual beliefs. He's going to have some show on, he had a show on TV or whatever. And Hefner's like, well, I just got this small belief in God. I really don't believe in him too much, however, however you do that. <laughs> How do you have a small belief in God? And he said this, he thought, though, the God of Christianity was, quote, a little too childlike for me. Well, I'm glad it's childlike. And when Strobel asked him, he asked Hefner, he said, so he's, he's in his mansion. He's like, you know, so what do you think of the resurrection? What do you think of that? And his answer was, if one had any real evidence that, indeed, Jesus did return from the dead, then that is the beginning of a dropping of a series of dominoes. Like, it would eventually probably lead to someone having to repent. <laughs> he said, but, and that would take us to all kinds of wonderful things. It would assure us of an afterlife and all kinds of things that we hope are true. But he said this, he said, but I don't think Jesus is any more the Son of God than we are. That's what he told Lee Strobel. Like I said, because, you know, for him to have to admit that and for him to, he says he never looked into the evidence. If you don't look into the evidence, how do you know whether it's true or not? Because like I said, there's been many a lawyer, many a man that has made it their aim in life. I'm going to prove the resurrection is totally false. And they end up becoming believers. If you honestly look at the evidence, that's where it's going to take you. Obviously, the Spirit of God has to open your eyes. But it's also attacked in the modern media constantly, and especially around Easter time. That's when you're going to see Time Magazine. You know, time Magazine doesn't come out much anymore. I don't even know if it's still being published. But they would always have on their, on their cover some article on the resurrection, true or false. And obviously, they're not going to put something in there that is pro the resurrection. But you'll have television shows, news magazines, and all that come out every year about that time. As I just found this article, 2017, just last Easter, in the Huffington Post, not a Christian publication. Now here's, they got an article, this lady's talking about the resurrection. And she says, how well do we understand the resurrection? What does it mean to say, he is risen? Is Jesus resurrected? Well, where is he now? Or was it Christ who resurrected? Or something else? Now right away, that ought to tell you where that's headed. And I'm not going to read this whole article, but she said, truth is a slippery thing anyways. If we are open to it, we can reach an understanding one day and on another day have a much greater understanding of the same truth. Isn't that resurrection? She says, well, that's a resurrection of understanding. This means that when we die, our ideas continue not as they were while we lived, but now in a new way as if they acquire new life. And there's a lot of people that think that. That's a lot of what a lot of modern theologians will say. Well, no, he didn't literally bodily resurrect, but his spirit is still with us. His ideas are still here with us. And on and on and on. 
But the trouble with that is thousands of people, I mean, there's a lot of people read the Huffington Post. It's a major news publication. Thousands of people will read that and think, that is deep. We laugh at something like that, but that is what they'll do. We talked about how the devil builds strongholds. That is how he does it. The resurrection is about living ideas, not the physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it works. It's constantly being under attack because it is a fundamental belief that we have. It is totally necessary for salvation. And we'll see a lot more than that as far as our Christian life goes. We talked and said there's three ways that the resurrection of the Lord can be described. And we said the first one, which we talked about last time, is it's a fulfillment of scriptures. Foremost thing we need to understand is we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, not because we feel good about it, not because it makes sense, and not because our church or our mama told us that's what we should believe. It's because it is a fulfillment of scriptures. Because Paul said, we said that was his argument in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died according to the scriptures. That's his main first point, and that he was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. And then he goes on to say that he was seen by all these different people. We also said the second thing is the resurrection can be described as a historical fact. It should still be in Luke 16. Look what it says there in verse 6. And he said unto them, this angel, he says, Be not affrighted, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. And he says, He is risen. He's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. In other words, he's saying, it's a fact. He's risen. He's given testimony to the fact he's not there. He's risen from the dead. But he's not talking about a resurrection of the understanding, is he? He said, he's not here. His body's not here. He didn't say his body's here, but his understanding's floating around waiting to bless you. The third thing we're going to look at, and the last thing, is that the resurrection also has a tremendous theological and spiritual impact on our lives. You know, we talked last time about that the resurrection is a fulfillment of scriptures. And like I said Sunday, the Bible is a very practical book, and it deals with the issues of life that everybody deals with. It really does. And Job, in his book, he asked the fundamental question that I think everybody, saint or sinner, at one point in their life asked, and it's Job 14, 14, and here's the question. If a man die, shall he live again? If a man dies, shall he live again? I think, like I said, I think everybody asks that if a man dies. You just wonder that. And he answers his own question. Just a few chapters later, Job 19, he says this. He says, for I know, Job said, despite everything I've gone through, despite how bad it looks, and physically he probably felt like he was going to die. And he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed... This I know, Job said, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. And now my heart yearns within me. And he's speaking prophetically there of the resurrection of the dead. And he had a revelation. He had to have a revelation to say that I know my Redeemer lives, and I know even though my flesh will rot, I will see him, he said, in my flesh. He had to have a revelation. Job's the first book that was written in the Bible. Oldest book of the Bible. And he had that revelation. I want to go on and move to the second point tonight, though. We'll get into the second point, and that is that the resurrection is an historical fact. 
And that is a thing that we need to understand, that our religion, the religion we believe in, Christianity, is based on historical facts. Christianity is not based on visions, something that some prophet had, like Islam, that can't be verified. It's not like that at all, right? The heart of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they're supernatural events that took place, aren't they? But they're also objective, verifiable, historical facts, as opposed to visions, ideas, or philosophies. So we need to understand our faith, the faith that we have, is based on fact. And that's critical. And the first fact, the first historical thing is Jesus was killed by crucifixion. That's really an undisputed fact of history, for the most part, undisputed. One extreme liberal, John Crossan is his name, he said that he was crucified, speaking to Jesus, is as sure as anything historical can be. And to take it to the modern day, Bart Ehrman is a man who is a very smart man. And at one point he was a Christian, and now he's an agnostic. I'd say he may as well be an atheist. But this guy knows Greek like nobody knows Greek. And he is a Greek scholar, but he's made it his mission in life to destroy the New Testament, to destroy the credibility of the New Testament. This man, though, despite that, his goal, his stated goal is to destroy Christianity. Bart Aaron. He said this, despite all that, he says that the crucifixion is an indisputable fact. Despite that, he can't deny that. There's a Roman historian who was a non-Christian back in the day. I believe he lived from A.D. 80 to 120, 130, whatever, A.D. He said this of Jesus, and this is verified. I mean, historians that don't believe in the resurrection believe that this was verifiably written by him. And he said this, that Jesus suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius. That was written during the first century. He says, I'm a historian. I'm saying he was crucified. A man named Jesus in Nazareth in Jerusalem was crucified. And Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, said Pilate condemned him to be crucified. His crucifixion is not in dispute. It really isn't. Even by people that don't want to believe it, believe in the resurrection. They believe he was crucified. Now, what happened after that, they may dispute. The second historical fact that we need to know is that Jesus was seen by many witnesses. We have four gospel accounts, don't we? Every one of the gospel accounts describes the witnesses of the resurrection. We have right here in Mark 16, look in verse 9, it talks about Mary Magdalene. Now, when Jesus was risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. In the other gospel accounts, we'll talk about the women that returned to the tomb. It talks about Peter and John coming to the tomb. We have the two on the road to Emmaus, and Mark even talks about that. And that's in verse 12, after he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into their country. Verse 14, he talks about the eleven, and afterward, verse 14, Mark 16, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat. And then we know John 20, it talks about he met Peter, and I believe it was five other ones, there were six or seven of them there at the lake fishing. So those are the gospel accounts, four different gospel not everybody was an apostle, were they? You have Luke and you have Mark. Matthew was an apostle and John was an apostle. But all four of them separately say that he rose from the dead and there were witnesses. And they describe who those witnesses are. And those are historical documents. 
They are gospels, but they're also historically true, historically accurate historical documents. And then we have in the book of Acts, which was written by Luke, that we have the testimony there that Paul saw the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. But not only him, think about who else saw the risen Lord in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7, Stephen saw him. Stephen saw him. Then we have 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul, as we said earlier, Paul reports that the risen Lord Jesus Christ was seen by Peter. He reports he was seen by the twelve. And then he says he was seen by 500 brethren all at once. And he goes on to add, of whom the greater part remains unto this present day, even though some are fallen asleep. And then he says that James, James is the Lord's brother. Jesus specifically, he singles him out, specifically appeared to James, his brother, who became the leader. We talked about that when we did the book of James in Jerusalem. And all of this happened within five years of the crucifixion. All of this happened within five years of the crucifixion. All these documents that we're describing. Do you know the Gospels were orally transmitted before they were actually put down? For years, and so everyone knew the stories. It wasn't like they just began. It's you know, 30 years after Jesus, I'm going to write the gospel, and nobody knew about. It. They were orally transmitted, and they finally thought, well, no, before we die, we better get this in writing. Is how that happened. The gospels were all written within 70 years of his crucifixion, which is a very short period of time. Acts was written in the early A.D. 60s by Luke, and 1 Corinthians was one of the first epistles. It was written in A.D. 54. Now, that's only 24 years after the Lord died. And all of the things that are said there, all these witnesses that are talked about, 500 people all at once, wouldn't be hard to check that out, would it? He just said some of them have passed away. Most of them are still alive. The majority of them are still alive. I would probably bother to go check that out. The 500 people having that, that's a major fact of history. It's like somebody's going to try to deny, and they probably will at some point. I mean, they're trying to deny the Holocaust took place. And they got witnesses of that and whatever else. But I'm saying they got too many witnesses that anybody's going to take that seriously or, or that the 9-11 didn't happen. <laughs> we got way too many witnesses on that. There'll be somebody come along, though, and say that was somebody's figment of their imagination, I guess. But the other thing, the third thing is we have the empty tomb as a historical fact. Even the Jewish leaders will admit that the tomb was empty. So they had to pay the soldiers to say the tomb was empty because the body was stolen. But the fact that his tomb was empty, everybody knew it. They knew where it was. They knew it was right near the garden. Wouldn't be hard to find that. And so if they're going to say that the disciples stole the body, I doubt if anybody really believed that. Why are they going to steal the body? When they are scared to death, we just read it in Mark 16. He has to get on them because they believe not. And when Mary Magdalene comes, verse 11, they believe her not. In verse 14, afterward, when he appeared unto the eleven, as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart. Why? Because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. So these cast of characters here, they're going to be the ones to steal his body and then lie about it? I mean, that doesn't even make sense. The other thing is, they're going to come against four Roman soldiers, hardened Roman soldiers set to guard that. Say they did even fall asleep, which they wouldn't have because there was a severe punishment if you fell asleep. 
somehow they're going to roll that stone away and these guys are asleep and they're not going to wake him up when it would take three men to roll that thing out of that groove that was cut. They could roll the stone in fairly easy, but to get it out of there, that was going to take some effort. They somehow did that without waking these guys up. It's really absurd, isn't it, to say that that happened. And they weren't expecting Jesus to rise. And more to the point of the empty tomb, why would they risk their lives and risk being tortured for a lie? Because nobody is going to perpetrate a lie to that extent. And there's a famous quote that says, martyrs and hypocrites are not made of the same stuff. You might die for something you knew was true, but you're not going to die like that or be tortured for something that you know is false. And plus, they're preaching a gospel of salvation, life, and truthfulness based on a lie. That's crazy. I mean, I don't think people really take that seriously. And I know there's other theories out there. This one to me is, believe me, I'm not going to bog down a bunch of theories, okay? But the swoon theory, you know, swoon means you faint because you're under a lot of stress or whatever. And that theory is, and it's been put forward, and some people believe it, that he wasn't really dead. Jesus wasn't really dead. He just swooned from weakness and a loss of blood. But then it was the coolness of the tomb and the fragrance of the aromic spices that are all around him and the hours of rest that he had that all revived him. And then we're supposed to believe that despite the fact he had nails in his feet that were pulled out, that he walked on the road to Emmaus after a beating, lack of food and water, scourging, crucifixion, spear in his side, and three days in a tomb, he rallied, rolled the stone aside, and then went on a walk. He's strolling around. I mean, that's kind of absurd. Or the other one that is probably more popular is that these people were all having hallucinations. They just so bad wanted to see Jesus again, that Mary Magdalene and the disciples, they're all having hallucinations. For one thing, there has never been a case recorded that I am aware of or ever heard of of 500 people all having the same hallucination at the same time. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Here is the crucial thing, and that is the crucial fact is something happened. Something happened that created a belief in the disciples that Jesus rose from the dead because these men were totally transformed. Total transformation took place in their lives. They were too scared to ask for the body. Joseph of Arimathea, a council person, had to do that. And they're terrified. They're hiding away, disappointed. We just read they're unbelieving. They're huddled away somewhere. All of their hopes are dashed. And then suddenly, here they appear in Acts chapter 2. Here they are proclaiming to the Jews that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, that his death was the plan and will of God, and that you, they're pointing the finger at him, Peter is, the one that was so afraid of a little girl. And now he's saying, you by wicked hands have taken and crucified him. And he told them, you've crucified the author of life. And they also were saying, this one that you all crucified, God has raised from the dead, and through him he is now offering you repentance and forgiveness of sins. So what was it that changed these men? from being unbelieving cowards into bold proclaimers and witnesses of what they saw. There is only one thing that could account for it if you're going to be a reasonable person, and that was the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. It had to be a fact for that to all take place. And Peter said, this Jesus has God raised up, and he says, whereof we are all witnesses. He's saying that because they were, right? 
the disciples didn't just believe Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't just believe it. It says, but they knew for a fact that he did. There's a big difference, isn't there? I know for a fact because I saw it. I saw him. This is totally different than the modern day Islamic terrorist or others willing to die for their beliefs. These people can only have faith that their beliefs are true, but they aren't in a position to know for sure. But the disciples, on the other hand, they knew for a fact the resurrection had truly occurred. And knowing the truth, they were willing to die for the belief that they had. They were willing to die. We can be willing to believe their report, can't we? And the Spirit of God in us, Jesus says, my sheep will hear my voice. The Spirit of God in us witnesses what they're saying is true. And the words of Jesus are true. And the words of the Bible are true. It's a revelation given to believers by the Spirit of God. That's the only way you're going to know that. Otherwise, you're going to be like all these other guys. Hugh Hefner in the Playboy Mansion. He doesn't know about any of it. So that's where I'm saying it's a historical fact that's happened that can be verified. But the last thing I'd like to talk about is the theological and the spiritual implications of the resurrection. And those all come into the past, the present, and the future of our lives. In the past, Paul said, if Christ be not raised, you're still in your sins. And why would that be? Why The fact that he was crucified and put in a grave is not disputed. But if he wasn't raised, you'd still be in your sins? Because his resurrection was what? It was God's stamp of approval on his sacrifice. God's saying there is nothing lacking in the cross. It's his way of saying, I accept his sinless life. He was sinless, holy, and pure. And I accept the fact that his sacrifice met my just and holy demands, my just and holy requirements, and my wrath is appeased. He's telling us, all that have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that his blood that was shed on the cross has the full power to wash away our sins and to grant us forgiveness. It has the power to wash us white as snow. That's what God is saying through the resurrection. It's his guarantee. And the one verse we have for that is Romans 4.25 where it says, who was delivered for our offenses but was raised again for our justification. And justification means he'll treat us like we have never sinned, like we had lived the holy, righteous life that the Lord Jesus Christ did. Price has been paid. When he said it is finished, that was all that would have to be done. And so when Satan comes to us as believers and tells us, you know, you've sinned, well, you, yeah, you've repented, but what you've done, God can't forgive you. That's when, if you're not living in sin, so we understand if someone's living in sin, if you're still living in fornication, you're drinking, you're living in sin and not repenting, it doesn't apply. But if you're not and your heart's towards living for the Lord, Paul says this, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. And who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. He says, yea, rather, not just that he died, but he says, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Amen. Saying, get thee hence, Satan, when he comes by and says, you repented, but look what you've done. Look what you keep doing. I mean, if you truly repent and say, I'm done with that, it doesn't matter if you fall into it the next day. You weren't planning on it. You know whether you've really repented or not, but he's saying, it's God that has justified us through that sacrifice, and through the resurrection. Who is he that condemns you? We don't have to listen to that. 
And that takes care of our past. But in the present, which is even more critical, well, that, not that that's not critical, but the resurrection is the key to our power over sin. And it's what our baptism represents. If you would turn to Romans 6, Romans chapter 6, begin at verse 1. Paul writes in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, God forbid, may it never be. How shall we that are dead to sin, how can you live any longer therein? And then he says, don't you know this? Verse 3, know you not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Verse 4, therefore, because of that, we are buried with him by baptism into death that... Like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, what does he say? Even so, we also should do what? Should walk in newness of life. So baptism represents what? We talk about it when we do, and we just did one not too long ago. It represents our union with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's through the indwelling spirit that that resurrection power is in us, and that is what gives us power over sin. And we'll see it gives us power in a lot of ways. That's what Paul's whole point is in Romans 6. How can you live in sin if your old man's been buried and you've been raised to walk in newness of life with a new life and a new power within you? He's saying that should never be, that a Christian is living in sin. That is something that we have to meditate on and have God reveal to us. Because we're going to look at something that I mean, you guys are going to be like, you're wearing this out as bad as Brother Hamilton, and I probably am. But in light of what we're talking about, the resurrection power within us and what it'll do for us, turn to Ephesians 1. <laughs> I can't read it too much, I don't think. Ephesians 1, and beginning in verse 17, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul prays this, the Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. In verse 19, he says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? But look what he goes on to say, according to the working of his mighty power, verse 20, and how was that which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead? That power. He's saying that's the power, that resurrection power. That's the power that is in us. And he says you need to have a revelation of that, to see that. According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. And he goes on to say in chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God has made us alive. And when he made us alive, he's saying the same thing he said there in chapter 1. He made us to sit with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. And that's where we are. It's just we've gotten away from that, and I don't think we really believe it anymore. So I'm saying you need to meditate on things. If we say that we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we need to think about what we're saying. We're saying then that we have the Holy Spirit is who raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And think about what we're really saying then, that we have that power residing within us. That's what we just read there. I didn't make it up. I mean, isn't that what it says in Ephesians 1? That God can give you a revelation of what is inside of you. And the ones that have had that revelation are the ones that see that power manifested in their lives. 
If we don't care enough to think about it, to meditate on it, and what it's being said, and all, oh, well, that's just for somebody else, and not really believe it for ourselves, guess what? It won't do anything for us. It's not just automatic. And that's why Paul says, I'm praying you'll have that revelation. God will give you that, that you can see that. So I would say the only reason we're not experiencing that and knowing that, what he says there, is because, and this is all of us, is a lack of consecration and prayer. Because otherwise, God's word's not true. Amen? That's what he says we have. I think he's challenging all of us tonight. So this union we have with the Lord Jesus Christ that brings us into this resurrection power is no small thing. And one way to understand, maybe this will help you understand how that union works, is think about the docking of a space shuttle with a space station. You have got two separate aircrafts floating around in space, and they get docked together, and they become united together. And once that happens, guess what happens? The things that are in the shuttle, when they get docked, they can come into the space station. The things in the space station, sometimes it's a weary astronaut, goes into the shuttle to go back home. But there's an exchange. Once those spacecraft dock, there is an exchange that takes place. For us, when we dock with the Lord Jesus Christ, we've talked about this, there is the great exchange. All of our sin that's in us goes to Him. That's what He took on the cross. But all of His righteousness and His life and His power, it comes into us through that docking. So how are we docked with the Lord Jesus? By our faith. That is how we're docked. And we become united to Him. Well, what happens a lot of times is those space stations up there, they don't just have an unlimited amount of power, and their batteries drain down, and they have a loss of power. But the shuttle comes and unites itself, with, and everything comes back to life. <laughs> Brings new batteries. But listen, that's the same with us. Because it says we've lost all our power because of sin, haven't we? Lost all our power. We're weak in ourselves. We are. We're weak in our flesh, aren't we? But when we become docked, this is what Paul is telling us in Ephesians 1.19. When we become docked with the Lord Jesus Christ, His power becomes available to us. And we have power over sin and power over the devil. And that is why. Why did Paul say that that's the case? Well, we just read it in Ephesians 1.19. It's because of the resurrection. Isn't that what he said? That God would reveal that he would open our eyes, that we would see. Verse 19, look at it again. What is that exceeding greatness? We would know this, the greatness of his power toward us. And there you have to believe, according to... Here's what, according to the working of his mighty power, and how is that which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead? That power, it comes from the resurrection. That glorious fact. Let's add another one. What if Christ was not raised from the dead? We would have nobody to dock with, would we? We would end up then being, when sin comes in our lives and temptation comes in our lives, we'd be like everybody else in the world that isn't docked to Jesus. Powerless. Temptation would overwhelm us every time. But we need to think, we've been docked if you're a believer. And so we have that power available to us, toward us who believe. And then we have to know that the Bible says what? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And instead, I'm saying the one in the world seems to be the greater one. <laughs> it shouldn't be the case, should it?
The resurrection is the source of the power in our lives. And people are falling asleep in here. I'm fine. One day, we all slept through Brother Hamilton. You go back and listen to some of his messages, and you're going to realize we made a big mistake. Big mistake. Because it's just Brother Hamilton again. It's another Wednesday night. But going back and listening to some of his messages, they're prophetic. Paul said in Ephesians 3.10, he said this. He said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. He's saying there, that is how we can be made into the image of Christ. He says that I may know him. That's got to be first. Know him. What does that mean? That means we know him. We've committed ourselves to him and we're spending time in prayer with him, walking through trials, spending time in the word, listening to his voice. That's what it means. And more than that. But also, he says the second way is we can know or what we need to know is he says the power of his resurrection. Paul said that I may know him and that I may know the power of his resurrection because as we faithfully walk with the Lord and trust him, and that comes through knowing him, guess what we're going to need to be doing? Tapping into his resurrection power. Because we need it. We need his strength. We need his life. We need it to be able to continue to keep on believing and holding on to him. And God will bring us into situations where we will be utterly dependent on his grace and power. And Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 12. The Lord told him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What power is he talking about? The resurrection power that he just talked about in Ephesians 3.10. That's the power. And also, this resurrection power is how our healings are attained and miracles from the Lord. Power to lay hands on the sick and see them healed is because of the resurrection. And if you would turn over to Acts, the book of Acts chapter 3. Well, look what it says in Acts chapter 3 and verse 12. We're going to kind of look through a few verses here in Acts chapter 3 and 4. In Acts 3, 12 Peter and John, they raised the lame man. Peter did by grabbing his hand. And when Peter saw it, they're all coming around thinking he's some great person. And he answered and said unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this, or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness that we made this man to walk? And look what he says. Here's where the power came from. Look down in verse 14. He says, You denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and you killed the Prince of Life, whom God, he's the one, this is where this power came from, God has raised him from the dead, whereof we are witnesses, and his name, this risen Savior, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him, the risen Savior, has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And then look what it says over in verse 25 and 26. You are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And he tells the Jews this, he says, Unto you first, God, what? Having raised up his son Jesus, did what? Sent him to bless you. How does he do that? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. And then look over in chapter 4, look what it says in verse 9. They're brought before the Sanhedrin. P 
Peter says this, being filled with the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 8, verse 9, it says, If this day we be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, and by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, even by him, it's the risen Lord, by him does this man stand here before you whole. We looked at 9 and 10. Look in verses 29 to 33. Look what it says. They have just been threatened and they're getting before the Lord and praying. And it says in verse 29, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. And look what he says in verse 30, But stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thine holy child Jesus. Whose hand is that that's being stretched forth? It's the Lord Jesus. And when they prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And look what it goes on to say, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart, of one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. They had all things common. And look at verse 33. It says, And with great power gave the apostles what? Witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and it says, and great grace was on them all. So miracles and healing took place in the early church. Why? As a witness, and because the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That's where the power came from. And also when those miracles and healings would took place, what is that showing to everyone? It's encouraging the people in church. It's showing the people out in the community. What? That this risen Lord that they are giving witness to really is alive because he is still doing the same things that he was doing when he was walking this earth. Now it's just through his people because he indwells them. And when they stretch their hand out, it's the same as him stretching his hand out. That's why that prayer was there. And so that is where the power comes from. Because Jesus is alive from the dead. And he's healing back in the book of Acts. And he's healed all through church history as a sign that he is alive from the dead. So what he did then, we've said it before, say it again. He will still do today. Do we believe that? I really do believe that. Man, that's a big deal what he's doing for us in this present time through the power of the resurrection and his indwelling power through the resurrection. But also in the future, Christ being raised from the dead, that's not just one isolated resurrection, is it? Paul tells us that he is the first fruits. So he says, but now, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, but now is Christ risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of them that slept. First fruits means there is more to come. That's just the same as what happened. More of the same. And the Bible does tell us, and this is our hope, isn't it? That our resurrected bodies will be like His resurrected body. First John 3 says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And we don't know exactly what a resurrected body is going to be like. Or look, I've never seen one. So I don't know exactly what it's going to be like. But Paul tells us certain things about it. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says it's going to be incorruptible. That means there's not going to be any more rotted teeth. 
the things that aren't working right. No decay. Incorruptible is what he says. It's going to be glorious. Bodies that are healthy and radiant. It talks about that they will shine forth like the sun. Healthy and radiant. Powerful, Paul says. It's going to be a powerful body, not weak and lacking strength. You're not going to be stressed out and all tense, but it's going to be raised in power. You're going to have lots of energy and power. Not going to need to ever go to sleep. You're never going to be tired again. And it's, it says the body is going to be spiritual as opposed to natural. Because we're going to be living in a new heavens and a new earth and a new spiritual dimension. And we will have bodies that are going to be adapted to that spiritual dimension. They will be real bodies. And also he says that our bodies will be immortal. So there's one word that will be taken out of our vocabulary. Death will be immortal. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears because you've been separated from a loved one or a friend who you dearly love. So I don't know what it's going to be like, but I don't think that anybody will be disappointed. His eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. For them that love him. We just need to ask God to give us hearts to love him more. So we can see all that happen. Amen. Well, let's pray. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and the fact of the resurrection that took place in the Lord Jesus Christ and then all the ramifications that has for our lives, Lord, that not only can we know for a surety that our sins and our past and even the sin we may commit tomorrow will be forgiven because you're faithful and just if we'll confess our sins, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but also, Lord, that within us is that power to overcome sin, that power to see you heal our bodies and that living water to flow out of us. It's all because of your resurrection, that resurrection power that is in us. And we also, Lord, thank you that we can look forward to one day having a glorified body like yours. That's the promise we have. And so we thank you for all of that, Lord. Just ask you to make that real in our lives and something that's on our minds and that we can share with others as part of our testimony, as part of a witness to your word and what it says. And we can ask them that question. Do you believe that a man will live after he dies? And then we can share the gospel with them. I ask you to help us to do that and to be faithful to your word and to you. And we do that all in Jesus' name. Amen.